Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant and in this episode I'm joined by a naturalist, TV presenter and photographer who happily admits to preferring animals to humans and who has documented his lifelong passion for wildlife in a new memoir, Fingers in the Sparkle Jar. He's Chris Packham. Welcome, Chris. Hello. Chris, your book vividly describes your deep connection with the natural world. When did your passion for it first begin? Can, can you remember that? I can remember being interested from as long as I can remember. So certainly before I was at school, I remember having tadpoles and catching everything that I could in the garden and, and putting it into jars and taking it into my room. My parents say that from the point I was crawling around our small garden in Southampton that I was curious, picking things up, never had any aversion to anything, worms, slugs, snails. The whole lot offered uh, a reward for my curiosity. So you have uh, no fear of any animals? Only humans, um, no fear of any other animals. I have a healthy respect for quite a few species, which could obviously potentially harm me. Obviously, there have been a few mistakes. There's a few holes and healed holes in the body. But no, no, no fear. It's just a curiosity, and curiosity would overcome any of that fear, I think. And did your parents have curiosity about animals, or guide you in any way about that? No, they didn't initially. Obviously, by the time I was thoroughly obsessed, they were drawn into that, and they were incredibly supportive. They allowed me to fill their house with all of the animals um, and their garden, which ended up as not a garden but as a small safari park. They would drive me around the country to all the zoos, all the safari parks, everywhere I wanted to go, and most importantly, out into the countryside so that I could explore it. And that's what most of their weekends were given over to. If we weren't in art galleries or castles, then I was allowed to run in a fresh piece of woodland or over a bog to find something new. Let's hear a clip from the audiobook of Fingers in the Sparkle Jar, read by you, in which we get a sense of your wonder of the natural world at the tender age of five. He was lying on a tablet of riches, his wilderness explored. He knew the plains, the forests, the canyons intimately, and where all its life lived and hid, the boulders that covered the scaly caverns of woodlice, where quick twisty centipedes were shiny and soft beneath his fingers, the lovely bark where tiny specks of crimson ran and stained those fingers dead red, the corners where secret spiders stood motionless on their soft handkerchiefs, and the lake, pool, baby bath a muddy cradle in which many miracles swam. On its banks, he dipped spoons for tadpoles and the twitching larvae of mosquitoes. They ziggled down in droves as the steel broke the surface and bent all the lines. Then they'd relax their fear and drift slowly up, easier to scoop up and transfer to a saucer, where against the white he could just see their eyes and bristles and snorkels. Others were fatter, like comma-shaped bogies, and then there were the unwettable rafts of eggs that stuck to his fingers or clung to the rim of the dish. In the stinky sauce that smoked in whirls from the bottom when he reached down to ransack the leaves, there were fierce things, with jaws that scissored as he squeezed them, with bulging eyes and robot bodies, creatures that sat still and then picked their way cautiously on legs that appeared from nowhere. There were maggots with long tube noses, hard tear-dropped bugs that flicked rapidly backwards and stabbed him when he grasped them tightly in his fist as they tried to flee into the tussocks he'd submerged to build a swamp at one end of the oasis. Wasps drank, newts gulped, skaters skidded. Everything was new.
everything needed knowing. Chris, we heard about your dipping for tadpoles in that clip, and the first of your objects you brought along today and which play an important part in your book is a custom-made tadpole contraption. Well, what we've got here is a, a small spoon which came from the back of a my parents' cutlery drawer, um, and it's about 20 centimetres long, 18 centimetres long, uh, but it's quite pliable, and I've bent it so that the spoon is not quite at right angles to the handle, and this meant that I could put it into the jam jar and decant the tadpoles more easily, because at that time, tadpoles, you know, every year, tadpole time was just the best time of the year, better than Christmas, better than birthdays, because I could go to the pond on Southampton Common and fill jars with spawn and then rear them all the way through, hopefully through uh, until they got through to, to frogs. But this is the very spoon. I've kept it all, all of my life. I used it for other purposes on occasions, but now it lives in a little drawer. And it was this spoon that, yeah, between about five and eight and maybe nine, I would go into the bedroom and constantly be decanting tadpoles poles from one jar to another. Do you think that you were an insatiably curious child compared to your friends? When it came to natural history, yeah, there was there was no doubt. I mean, you know, sleep was a waste of time and I've always said, you know, sleep when you're dead, eat just before and that was a mantra that I evolved really early on. You know, I did never wanted to be indoors. You know, I'd get here and throw my books in the corner. I'd be gone before my mum could say home, let alone homework. What I'm very curious about is that you refer to yourself in your book as the lonely boy. When So when did you start to feel this isolation? Well, I, I had... You know, people I hung out with at school, I think it really just came to the fore during adolescence. You know, up until that point, I could mix in with people and we'd all kick a football. And I had one or two people who had a, a sort of cursory interest in coming out with me if I was, you know, looking for bird's nest or catching snakes or, or not so much watching foxes because that invariably meant going out in the evening and they weren't allowed out in the evenings. But But you were... Well, I escaped out the window. If my parents had tried to constrain me and keep me away from a family of foxes, they'd have needed, you know, chains and bars. It would have been... It was, it was just impossible. So I, I had plenty of people that I knew, but when we got to adolescence, then I think the difference between myself and them became, you know, far more clear. And, 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 and that's when it became difficult for me to deal with. Initially, I just sort of felt a bit... A bit different at times, and sometimes they'd get very tired of my obsessional interest, and, and that didn't appeal to them. But when we got to adolescence, then yes, I became consciously aware, initially very painfully aware of that difference. I mean, I didn't understand it, you know, I just felt rejected. I think that it was just the degree of interest, the obsessional level of interest, and also the, the degree of detail that I'd want to absorb compared to, to uh, anyone else. Both your parents supported that, did they? Yeah, my parents were very keen on me progressing academically. And my father was, and my mother too, were very keen that I would pursue that. So I think that, you know, their perception was that Chris's level of learning was good because it would produce results, in, in academic results, in the end, which it did in, in the end, you know. They clearly provided you a secure start, as we'll hear now in another excerpt from the audiobook of Fingers in the Sparkle Jar. The otter was my present. I'd made it go to sleep under the sideboard, beneath the window, in the shadiest part of the room, the dimness offering a faint yet still desperately implausible suggestion that it might be real. Its body was cricked rather than curled. Its tail snapped and its stiff, straight limbs stuck up unnaturally into the shadow. They were blunt rods, footless, 
clawless, and its torso was a tubby cylinder that fused necklessly with its rectangular flattened head. Two fraying ears flopped onto the cushion, and its brown teddy bear eyes stared at me asymmetrically over its black button nose. Its fur was short, evenly coloured, and glistened plastically, a sort of sparse mauvey beige pile, nylon, through which I could see my mother's crude needlework. Despite her efforts, it was the whole world's least cuddly otter. Chris, if otters were an obsession as a young teenager, there was one particular animal that became even more pivotal to you. And if you pass me your next object you brought with you, some listeners might guess what it was. Yeah, these are very sacred things. These are two small hawk bells, worn on the, the legs of a hawk, a trained hawk, and they were made somewhere in Pakistan in the early 1970s. I imported them from Lahore uh, after sending postal orders or, or something over there. And these were worn on the, uh, on the legs of my first kestrel, which I got in 1975. Now, please tell me how you came about getting your first kestrel. Well, I was, I was obsessed with birds nesting. I, I used to go out looking for birds' nests all the time, and initially I'd collected birds' eggs. Had you seen cares at this point? Do you know, I don't think I saw it until... Well, I saw it before I got my kestrel, mm -hmm. but there was no relation between Billy Casper and I. I didn't live in the industrial north. My parents were supportive, unlike his. Um, I thoroughly researched the whole exercise. I didn't just find the kestrel. I mean, I'd read every book on falconry that I could possibly you know, get my hands on. So it, the whole thing was meticulously planned, and I had a applied for a licence from the Home Office to get the bird, but this be not, I won't mince words here, working-class oiks like me on the edge of Southampton weren't given licences for that sort of thing in those days, so it was declined, but even at that age I wasn't taking no for an answer. So I, I stole, if you like, the bird from the nest in, in June of 1975, and I trained it, and I got these bells, and these little pieces of leather, these are called bewits, and they hold the, the bell onto the leg of the bird, and these are actually made of kangaroo kangaroo leather, which I got from a distant uncle in, um, in, in Australia. In, in one of the Falkland manuals I had, it, when it was talking about the best leather to make these and the jesses, the small straps that hold the bird's leg so it can't flee from your, your glove or whatever, it said that white whale was one of them, I remember. Mm -hmm. uh, dog was another. <laughs> I don't know if I was going to get any dog leather or, or beluga uh, leather. So out of the, the short list that there, of these fanciful um, fabrics that there were there, the only one that I had actually access to potentially was kangaroo the interesting thing is i've still got the rest of the kangaroo leather in a in a box at home which i kept to make future jesses but i'm amazed that you just rattle off these oh well you got the bird out of the nest and then you trained and you did this you'd never trained a bird before no so uh, this was from reading books yeah, I, I tried to get help. I tried to join the British Falconers Club. Um, they wouldn't have me. Why? I wrote to the gentleman there and I said, you know, can I join the club so that you'll support my application for a licence? And he said, no, you can't be a member of the club until you've got a licence. It was classic Catch-22 oh. and it was all set up to prevent people like me... But from... he wants to know you now. Yeah, you know, they... <laughs> <laughs> I think it was... Yeah, I've still got all the letters and I still look at them from time to time and I remember how much anger they instilled and how much and confusion. I mean, I didn't understand why these people wouldn't allow me into their club. I didn't see why I couldn't be a part of it. My interest was as fervent, my sort of objectives as honourable, but they wouldn't let me into their club. So, so you I, taught yourself from 
The books. I did, yeah. I went out every day before school, well, during the summer holidays initially, obviously, when I got the bird, and then before school, and I trained it to fly in the, in the same amount of time it said that I should in the book. Bear in mind that my whole world was the bird. Nothing existed apart from me and this kestrel. Well, one of the most powerful parts of your memoir is the point where you describe the moment where you set the bird free for the first time after weeks of intensive training in the hope he would fly back to you. Let's hear what happened. He was free, untethered, untied. I stood up and walked away, my back to him whilst I fumbled in the plastic bag for a sliver of beef. I tucked it into my glove and kept treading my trampled path. I watched my wet shoes, tasting the metal whistle with my tongue tip until I reached the ball of line. I squashed the blob of meat on my thumb and went down on one trembling knee to ask the biggest question of my life. He was a jewel, radiant in the rich dawn light, his head bobbing. He was the centre point about which I danced, his tail fanning. He was all my absolute everything. His freedom terrifying. I lifted my arm and blew the whistle. He nodded. He shuffled. He ducked and flinched his drooping wings. He nearly toppled off the block and pirouetted as he steadied himself. He shook. I blew the whistle again, harder, freeing the sticky pea, feeling it whirling in the chamber. And then he came in the sweetest flurry of shallow flaps and ringing tinkles, followed by a long, low glide and a rush up onto my fist to crouch and snatch the titbit and flick it back and swallow it, and I smoothly reached up and held the jesses, and he was mine again, and I breathed again. And the buses revved, the lorry pulled away, and the moon spun and the whole world started over. And then I felt good, I'd never felt so good. I wanted to shout. I wanted to run or jump. Just run and jump. Instead, I blushed at him and closed my eyes. I loved him so much, I wanted to be him. I know you don't like being flattered, but that is absolutely, incredibly powerful and moving. Did you ever feel a sense of guilt about taking him from his nest and away from his natural habitat? Not at the time. I, I was so into him, and, and I'd grown up always wanting to keep animals. Everything had to go in a jar, everything had to get into the bedroom or into the garden. But later, and now for instance, you know, I don't need to keep animals, I need to watch animals. And this was the last point, I think, when I needed to try and own wildlife, as it were, own in inverted commas. I, I won't have any regrets for doing what I did, but I don't need to... I mean, I have two dogs now that I dote upon. Um, my partner... Itchy and Scratchy. Itchy and Scratchy, yeah. And my partner has a zoo full of animals that have been rescued from horrendous places, circuses and the like. But ideally, I, I prefer my animals in the wild now. So you were actually threatened with prosecution for having the bird without a licence. What, what did you feel about it at that point? Well, we had a, a neighbour who was, um, I think, simply unpleasant, really. And she asked the RSPCA to come round and then the police to come round. The RSPCA were very good. I have to say the, the, the officer that came was, was brilliant. You know, he just said the bird's being really, really well looked after. And, you know, again, it was a lack of understanding. I couldn't understand at that point why she would be so unkind to a 14-year-old boy who just wanted to train a bird in his back garden. It didn't make sense. It didn't compute. And even now, you know, when I'm thinking about her, 
And I'm thinking about the impact that that had on me. At the time, it was extraordinarily negative. Thankfully, relatively quickly uh, after that, learned to turn that negativity and my anger and confusion into a positive force and used it to fuel my determination to achieve whatever it was I wanted to achieve. We'd like to turn to your next object that you brought with you today. Please, can you tell me what it is? Yeah, this is a, a fox's skull. I've picked up skulls from quite a young age. Um, but invariably, when you find a skull where the animal's decayed in the natural environment, then the teeth have all fallen out of it, and it may have been chewed by other animals to, for the calcium. So this was uh, actually came from the head of a fox. So in order to get a, a skull like this, you need the head of the animal. Uh, the complete head, and then you need to go through the process of removing all of the flesh and tissue from it so that you can keep it in good condition and also essentially keep all of its teeth. And what's unique about this one is this is the first fox skull that I got which has all of its teeth uh, because the others... So you found it intact? You didn't yeah, I, had it, I found the head, the... yeah, I found the fo- a dead fox. And uh, I took the head from the fox. Initially, I hadn't perfected the technique of removing the tissue, but I managed to do that. And then I've glued all of the teeth back into this one. And uh, although I have a number of other fox skulls and a great many other skulls, um, this one is my greatest treasure because this is the first one that I prepared myself. Uh, I think for me, that was one of the reasons that led to my collecting obsession is that through observing and and, and analysing the structure, in this case of a fox skull, in detail, I can better understand the animal and how it works. Because you can... Well, the most satisfying thing about, you know, an interest in natural history is... I mean, it's all very well coming up with questions and then finding the answer in a scientific journal. That's great. But if you can answer it yourself, if you can ask a question about something standing in a muddy field and you just picked it up and then you can come up with your own theory and your own answer, that's far more exciting. You clearly find great beauty and wonder in life, but death features throughout the book too, and at times you seem to find a profound beauty in that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I've always sort of found it quite culturally interesting how we treat death very differently than other cultures, but also the way that we don't treat it at all. One of the things that used to puzzle me, you know, when I was a kid, is that everyone would always be talking about tomorrow, and yet all around me, all of the time, things were dying, and there was never seemingly any guarantee that tomorrow would ever come. And when I got older, and people would say, well, you know, when you go to school or when you grow up or when you go to university or this, this, and I was thinking, hold on a minute, if, not when, if, if, if. And it's almost as if within our culture we, you know, we're terrified of death. And I think the reason we're terrified of it is because we, we never know when it's coming. It, I think we'd all be much happier if we knew when we were going to die. But because we don't know when it, we're going to die, we presume that life is infinite. We presume that it's going to go on and on. And then we develop an expectation that it's going to go on and on and on. And then when, of course, it doesn't, we get terribly upset about it. Um, and this was something I really struggled with because as a young naturalist, keeping animals and and, and so on and so forth, although I wasn't surrounded by a lot of human death, my parents were, were healthy, my grandparents at that time were healthy, many of the, the creatures, which I loved more than most of the people were were dying. And it seemed almost as if you were reassured by the fact of holding that skull that sort of emphasised that you are alive and that that life is gone. Yeah, I I, I live with that. I live with that on a a sort of a personal basis. I think a lot about the death of my dogs who were, you know, really, really close to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the sort of person that counts rainbows. You know, I, I do try to get up every day and think today could be the last. You know, you mustn't waste a moonrise. You've got to seize all of these things. If you're lazy, then like, you'll 
wasting the most extraordinary thing. One planet we know of in the entire universe with life on it, and you've got a short tenure. You've got to be a sponge. You've got to have everything. You know, you've got to suck every single last bit of that up. So as a youngster, you often ended lives for the sake of others, such as shooting sparrows to feed your kestrel, but you also ended life before it had a chance to flourish, such as collecting eggs from birds' nests. Did you ever feel uncomfortable doing these things? Well, not initially, no. Um, I think that was the confusion, and that's one of the themes that I've explored in the book. I mean, I think if you read it superficially, you can say, Chris, what a hypocrite. At one point, he's you know, eating tadpoles. At the next point, he's crying about two boys, killing them by hitting them with a hammer. What's the difference? And I think that as a, a child developing an intense fascination and then after that an immense respect for life, there is that interface whereby initially you abuse it because it's so bountiful, the tadpoles, there was just jar after jar after jar of tadpoles. It didn't matter if I ate them. You know, there were plenty more there or plenty more to come. But then as I, as I got older, you know, that interface between needing to collect things, i.e. to kill those eggs, to, to keep them as these sort of sterilised little treasures in my drawer, entirely out of context with the natural world, that begins to, you know, to dawn on me. And the contrast between loving life and then having to deal with death is another theme that's explored in the book. Death suddenly looms large in the next clip we'll hear from the audiobook of Fingers in the Sparkle Jar. Here you are as a teenager out checking snares. The fox. I had to free it, and quickly. So I edged along the log and discovered the snare was round its neck, and that it was crimped and twisted, and there was blood dripping pinkly from its jaws and from the shredded strands of wire. It was crouched now, ears swept back, clamped tight to its visible skull, and it shifted to face me whenever I leaned to examine my options. It wasn't going to let me free it without a fight, and I'd need to get to the noose's knot with my frigid fingers. I had no pliers, no knife, and no time, and I was about two miles from the nearest house and my bike. I found a fence post and slid it down the snare to pin the fox's head back so I could get at its neck. I knelt on it as it struggled, and I palmed its fur apart between my knees. The wire had cut through its skin and bruised and bloodied the muscles beneath. It had corkscrewed and the knot had jammed tight, the metal threads buckled, frayed and fused. I pressed my soft nails into the coils and with bleeding quicks bloodying my stiff white fingers. I tried to push them under the tie, but I couldn't. It was too tight. Again, I tried the knot pushing the brush of sharp ends deep into my thumb, turning and twisting against the throes of the terrified animal. I couldn't undo it. I ran my hand back up the snare to where it was attached to the log and felt and saw the staples driven deep into the hard wood. I pushed back and sat facing the fox. We stared at each other and at our ghastly predicament. We bled and cried. And then I picked up the post and cracked it down on his skull. So hard, so hard, he gasped and wheezed, and his eyes shivered closed, and when he continued to breathe, I dragged him back into that bloody river and drowned him. And when the bubbles stopped, I washed him and lifted him out, and we lay together, side by side, everything broken. Whoa. Has that haunted you? 
I remember pretty much everything in, in intense detail. But that morning and that episode, I, I remember everything, every blade of grass. It had a profound impact. You see, I, I loved foxes. I loved life. And, and although I killed other things, both deliberately and accidentally before that, this wretched animal trapped in a snare that I so wanted to get out so it could continue its life because it was so beautiful, so perfect. I, I had no option but to, to end its life. But, yeah, it was, it was devastating, absolutely devastating. Chris, we've, we've mentioned earlier about your difficulties in fitting in, and school for you was obviously very difficult, and there's venom in many of your recollections about these years. Has that anger fired you, or has it subsided? No, I'm still very angry. I'm an angry old man. I was an angry young man. I'm an angry old man. But I I learned a long time ago to channel that anger into creative things. If you are going to be angry, don't waste that energy. Don't waste that emotional reaction to whatever it is that you feel is wrong. You've got to try and use that to make it right. Now, there's one teacher who you talk about, Mr Buckley, who genuinely seemed to understand you and got you. He did. I'm indebted to John Buckley. You know, I I showed him my diaries and I showed him some snakes and and skulls and and pellets and things that I found in the classroom. And he would gently say, you know, well, you you take these eggs, you blow them, you kill them. There's nothing else happens after that. It's a dead end, isn't it? What about if you counted the eggs and then counted the chicks and then I'll come and ring them and then if they fly away, we might find where they're, you know, flying to. And by that method, we learn a lot more about them. And and to me, this was instantaneously a more sensible thing to do. And you've talked about how children today are too often mollycoddled when it comes to the outdoors. What would you like to see happen and to try to combat this? Well, I've lived in the house where I uh, rent the house now in the New Forest and I've been there now for eight years and I walk my dogs in the woods every day that I'm at home twice a day and I've never seen a child in those woods. Not one in eight years. Not one kid with an air rifle. Not one kid building camps, starting fires, collecting birds' eggs, climbing trees, all of the things that at least some, some kids did when I was younger. If kids can't touch it, feel it, get stung, slimed and bitten by it, and they're never going to love it enough to want to look after it. So your mantra is, um, let them go feral. Well, you don't have to. You don't have to abandon them. I mean, in, in, when I, you know, I did jump over the fence, and I don't think in my, my parents were in any way neglectful when we were kids. I was given enormous freedom to go out. I was meant to be back by the time it was dark. And sometimes that happened. In, if I had a torch, it didn't because there was still time to see things. But you know, even if you if you don't trust your kids to to go free and to some wild space, then go with them, but cut them free. You know, don't tell them not to climb the tree or not to go in the sting nettles. Let them find out that you do get stung, but it doesn't kill you. And the countryside isn't a dark and dangerous place. It's a a repository of enormous wealth. And just one contact with that can instil a lifelong fascination, which will be so rewarding for those people. Let's hear another clip that makes your feelings about your school days absolutely clear. The bird had stopped its broadcast, and in the distance he could hear the muffled sob of hymns from the hall and the sports teacher's theatrical snarls from the field, goading, rude and unfair, railing at the incapable, feeding the raw and cruel persecution of the few competents and their gangs of popular friends, all afforded immunity from ignominy due to an ability or interest in kicking, hitting or catching a ball. P.E. and sport were just hell. Get mocked because your bag wasn't Adidas or Puma or Gola. 
or wasn't the right size or shape, get ridiculed because your kit was old, or your boots weren't Franz Beckenbauer with three day-glow green stripes, get jeered at for slipping, stumbling or falling, get a finger screwed into a temple for not knowing a rule, or called a monger for fumbling a catch or a pass, or be labelled a homo for accidentally brushing against someone in the showers. Then get whipped by rat's tails, towels knotted and soaked in water, or have everyone shift their stuff to other benches because they spot your eczema and wince and scream and point and then tell all the girls who already think you're a retard. It was better to forget your kit and spend the time picking stones out of the newly sown pitches they'd spread over the old brickfields where he had hunted for hedgehogs and slowworms and seen a deer one winter's morning whilst on his way to the dentist. It had massive ears that swivel forward and back again independently before it bounded daintily into the soft hummocks of brambles to play a far more beautiful game. So Chris, he went from the lonely boy at school to an engaging and incredibly successful TV presenter only a handful of years later with your big TV break, The Really Wild Show, which launched in 1986 with you, Tony Nutkins and Michaela Strachan. How did that happen? Purely accidentally. I had no, you know, hadn't really been into TV. I left university. I was going to do a PhD, study badgers, change my mind. I met someone who was making films for the Natural History Unit in Bristol as a film cameraman. He gave me a job as an assistant. I then started making a few of my own films, but work was short. As in, When you're inexperienced, you don't get all the jobs, very obviously. So I, um, I went for an audition for The Really Wild Show. I went for a screen test, which I worked at very hard. I, I've got a copy of it on VHS somewhere. It's gruesome. And then uh, I went, eventually, I, I ran out of patience waiting to hear whether they were going to employ me in that role. So I went to see the guy, Mike Bainan, and um, he was the producer of the programme. And we sat in his office and I spent the last of my dole money to go to Bristol and walked from the station to the BBC in the rain and marched into his office and said, look mate, I've got plenty of other things I can be doing in my life. Are you going to give me this job or not? And, and Mike is a remarkable man and, and he kind of liked that sort of confrontational, no bullshit thing. And so I think probably based upon that one action, he said, yes, you're hired. And, so, and that was it. And and I had no training. They said to me, write, write some items and organise the animals. So I sort of, OK. So I, I, I did that, and I think they gave me a bit of help getting the animals to Birmingham, which is where we recorded the first couple of programmes. And I rocked up there expecting someone to give me some tuition on how to present wildlife programmes, even kids' wildlife programmes, and there was nothing. It was stand in front of the camera and talk for three minutes about seahorses. OK, then. So that's what I did. So you brought your punk attitude to the Really Wild show, which I suppose was a reflection of your love for music and punk rock in particular. So did the anarchic attitude of punk free you from your introspection? It was perfect timing. Again, I was becoming politically or socially aware of the world that I'd, I was growing into. That's what we do when we're, when we're teenagers, if we listen to the news and read the newspapers, and I certainly did. I'd also recognised that I was different than most of my peers. And punk rock, I think, was a perfect separating mechanism because purely cosmetically, by the way, I cut my hair and the clothes that I wore, I could separate myself from all of my peers and also from that part of the world which I didn't really like the look of, that I was moving into. The music 
helped because it was full of energy. It was robust. And angry. And very angry. Yeah. And, I, and I was very angry at that point. I was angry and confused. And, and so, as I say, it was a perfect alignment. It was a convergence of a great twain. Please uh, describe this object that you brought in here. Well, object, this is... A slip of paper. Yeah, this is another very valuable slip of paper. It says, Top Rank Suite, Box Office 10 to 5, Weekdays, Southampton. And this is a, the, a, a ticket stub from the first Clash concert that I went to, number 313, it says here. This was the Clash on the White Riot tour in 1977. Yeah, it was uh, pretty fantastic, absolutely fantastic. I remember them coming out onto the stage and it lit up and, it, and I was right at the front, which was a bit of a struggle for me because I don't normally like being jostled or touched by other people, but I was completely crushed by thousands of people. But that seemed to be... I seemed to be able to put that out of my mind, um, that the anonymity of those people was such that I could deal with it. And the the energy was just amazing. And, so being um, a punk rock-loving naturalist, there must be relatively few of you on the ground. Yeah, there certainly were say? at the time. I mean, yeah. I, I read a piece of my diary that I'd gone badger-watching in my bondage trousers. Now, what about that? That, that must have been a first old bondage trouser, it said. So they must have been the first ones that my mother made for me with straps and zips and everything. And but what, worn... you've, what you've described is that the anonymity of being crushed in that crowd of people is not really a contradiction of somebody who feels isolated and solitary, as you did. No, because I didn't know the crowd. I mean, you know, you can be lonely in a crowd, as they always say, lonely in London or whatever, whatever the expression is. So we've, we've talked about your troubles as a child, but Fingers in the Sparkle Jar is also unsparing in its detail of your troubles as an adult too. In fact, you were suicidal at one point, weren't you? A couple of times, a couple of times. Um, and what saved you? The first time, I think, was a lack of sincerity in the degree of, you know, the suicidal urges. It was more about other people and less about me. On the second occasion, in the early 2000s, it wasn't about other people. And on that occasion, I, I was far more serious about it. And, and I think that one of the things that led to my comfort with the idea was we've already touched upon, and that was the good parts of my life, not the bad. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt that I'd had a very complete life. I couldn't have, at that point in time, have said that I, didn't, I hadn't had a, a rich and rewarding life. And in a way, that sort of strengthened my my position, my argument, if you like. As it was, the first time I didn't have enough pills, and on the second occasion when I was seriously thinking about it, I had my, my dogs there. I mean, I love the dogs as much as I love that bird, and they, in their way, they loved me back, and I couldn't leave them on their own. I was in a place where they, I couldn't leave them on their own, so that was it, really. And before writing your memoir, had you ever publicly talked about these issues before? Uh, no, only with the uh, analyst, uh, psychoanalyst that I talked about them with at the time or shortly after that period. Um, I recognised immediate, immediately that I'd got past that, that I didn't want to have to go there again. I recognised there were issues I needed to address. Thank goodness, obviously, I didn't do it. But I also know that there will be and there have been other potential triggers that could have instigated that degree of depression again so I wanted to arm myself with a means of addressing those more effectively so I didn't get back to that point. The real benefit came a couple of years later there was like a lag and then after that when it had finally all sunk in and everything that we'd been through had sunk in then I, I hope now that I'm better armed to deal with those fits of depression which obviously people like myself are, are prone to. Your final object brings us back to your beloved Kestrel. What have you brought? 
Well, it's a small um, Polaroid picture, black and white. It's about uh, 12 centimetres square. And I'm standing on the left-hand side in my favourite fawn jumper from CNAs with the whistle around my neck. I've got a short fringe and long floppy bits down to my shoulders. And perched a on big my... 70s barnet. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It's a bit budgy, isn't it? Do you remember oh, budgy? It's fantastic. Adam Faith, budgy. Yeah. It's a bit that. It's not quite a feather cut, I suppose. No. But then, more pertinently, on, on my wrist, on the right-hand side of the photograph, is, my, is, is that kestrel which I took from the nest. And um, I'm looking at it. I'm looking into it. And it's looking down as if it's embarrassed by the, um, the degree of attention that it's receiving. <laughs> And, uh, and then what's interesting, on the back it says, uh, this picture was taken on the 12th of July, 1975, everything's documented. And then it says in a later script that I've added here, this is an only photo. If lost, please return. All costs will be paid. Chris, we heard a very moving extract earlier when your Kestrel flew solo for the first time, but some months after this, he became very ill. And here's a final clip from the audiobook in which you describe nursing him in your bedroom. Lying on the bed, I watched him sleeping his head twisting sluggishly round and then correcting itself, twisting, correcting, his eyelids fluttering, his brows twitching. He was dreaming. He made several barely audible squeaks and then struck out half-heartedly with his anemic foot. He was somewhere else, not in this choking hot room on a grotty chair, perched above a fetid porridge of dirty droppings, huddled in the half-light with a mucky chin and a grubby chest and a tail whose edges were frayed and dry and stained. He was out, tussling with currents of cool air, soaring through clouds and spinning after swallows, floating weightless, upswinging and falling away. He was strung on a glistening wind, crashing through a rainbow. He was flying for the sheer joy of flying. He was free. We had tea whilst Jim fixed it, and then at 6.30 I plodded upstairs with my dad to feed him some glucose solution. I took a towel, wrapped it around his wings, and sat on the edge of the bed with him laid across my lap. My dad used a syringe to draw about 10 millilitres of the clear, sticky fluid from the jar. Then he crouched alongside me, eased open his beak, and began to slowly compress the plunger. At first he swallowed it, but then he began to struggle. I told my dad to take it slowly, so he pulled the syringe away. He gasped once, then his chest heaved, and his eyes began to flicker. Then I heard my mum's voice prompting me to kiss him goodbye. And then he died. It was strange... I suddenly noticed we were all there, me on the bed, holding the swaddled bird, my father kneeling in attendance, my mother stooping over his shoulder, wringing her hands, and my sister standing separately, gaunt and puzzled. I could see it as if I was looking from outside, like it was some surreal nativity scene, except that the baby Jesus had just fucking died. And for just this one wretched, lingering moment, I could taste their horror, smell their shock and fear. I could sense the terror detonating within them, the knowing, like they'd just seen an atom bomb fall, and they were grappling with the realisation that the consequences would be total loss. Total loss. But in a second, it was gone. 
My father rolled the bird in a towel and took it out. My mother wrestled me into bed, turned out the lights and closed the door. Gone. Darkness. Confusion. Your loss is so eloquent and utterly desolate, but you currently enjoy the company of two animals who bring you great happiness, your joy grenades, as you call them. Why do you think, itchy and scratchy, why do you think some people feel such a deep connection to animals? Socialising with, with humans has always been difficult. The degree of difference between myself and most other people is significant. I'm not embarrassed by any, in any way to say that I love those dogs more than I love some people. And I think that the main thing is there's a security in it as well. I mean, that you know, the dogs, they never lie. They never mistreat you. They never, there's nothing Machiavellian about the relationship you have with an animal like that. There's just a pure honesty in, in that relationship. And I've cultured a very deep bond uh, w- with them. I share my life with them. You know, I just love waking up and knowing that they're warm there with me and, and then they, we go through our morning greeting and then I take them out and they run and they make me happy. They, I just take them out to the woods and they, every single day that I've done that, they've made me happy. And I can't say that about any human. You prefer animals to humans? Well, I have a very different relationship with humans. I have a stepdaughter and um, I have a partner, Charlotte. My father's still alive and my sister I'm very close to. And we share a lot of things. But there are certain things that I can't share with them which I share with my dogs. There are things, of course, I share with them which I the dogs can't share with me so the relationships are different there's no doubt about that but the purity the security the honesty of the relationship that i've had with other species of animal is something which is immensely valuable chris thank you very much for leaving the new forest to come up to the big smelly smoke today to speak to us and i'm incredibly grateful that you take as much time as you have with another human. (laughs) Thank you very much. Recorded on location on the English coast, BBC Radio 4 series A Guide to Coastal Wildlife is an informative and entertaining guide about our fascinating and diverse coastal wildlife, giving listeners the confidence to identify everything from sea squirts to sandhoppers. Sitting here under this overhang, I quite like to imagine what it will be like here when the tide comes in, when the water's about four feet above our heads, and all of this seaweed that's just dangling here will be wafting and floating around in the currents. The sea squirts will be squirting, (laughs) (laughs) wafting the filter feeding, and the sponges will as well, and there'll be fish weaving in and out, and crabs sidling across the sand. You paint a nice picture there, (laughs) but I I hate to tell you, but the tide is coming in, and it's coming a lot faster than we think. We need to get back to the beach. And in fact, uh, that's where you can join us next time for a guide to coastal wildlife because Phil and I will be scouring the strand with our buckets and spades looking for more resilient wildlife, razor shells, cockles and jumping sandhoppers. A guide to coastal wildlife and previous series are now available on iTunes and Audible.